Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In your Bibles now through Romans chapter 14, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of that chapter where Paul is really speaking to us about how to live together in peace as a church, as the body of Christ. We're going to be speaking this morning about stronger and weaker brothers, those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith, and how they are meant to live side by side. So hear the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Are you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Father, bless your word. Speak to us through it and strengthen us. In Christ's name, amen. During last week's sermon, about halfway through, I encouraged you to to go back in the sermon archives to September of last year and to re-listen to a sermon on Romans chapter 6. And now, in a spirit of insane optimism, I'm going to basically go even farther than that and say, while you're going back to September of, of 2019, also go back to August and September 2018 a sermon series called Eating with Jesus, a five-week series, which is a kind of uh, manifesto, if you will, of, of why we do things the way we do them at Grace, like the kind of community that Jesus is building here at Grace. Now, that sermon series began with two verses from Luke chapter 15, and I want to read those to you now because it, it's a helpful introduction thinking about how we're meant to live together, strong and weak. Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, meaning Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The fact that Jesus ate with sinners horrified the self-righteous people of his day. But the reason that Jesus ate with sinners is because he had come to solve the problem of sin. And if you're eating with Jesus, if you're eating with Jesus, you will always be eating with sinners the way that he did. Which means that the church will always be full of people who are not on the same page about Jesus. The church will always have people, Lord willing, who don't have faith in Christ at all. And the church will always, Lord willing, have people in its midst who do not see Jesus the way we see him. That's what eating with sinners is like. And in Romans 14, Paul tells us how that's supposed to work. And I think this is important. Obviously, everything that we've seen in Romans is important. But I want to argue that this passage in particular is important to those of you who've wondered why we cultivate the kind of community that we do here at Grace. Why we uh, don't necessarily do things the way others do them. In a nutshell, Paul, pointing to the world around, recognizes that in the world, the way it works is this. The strong despise the weak. In the world, the strong despise the weak, and the weak condemn the strong. That's the way the world works. But in the church, in the church, both strong and weak are called to mutual forbearance. Not to judge one another. Not to have contempt for one another, but to bear with one another. Now, Not everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ has a strong faith. And Paul is distinguishing between people who are strong in faith and people who are weak in faith. And as we talk about strength and weakness, remember we're talking about it specifically in faith. To be strong in faith or weak in faith. Now, If we're not all strong in faith, the question that that naturally comes up is what are we supposed to do about the weaklings? What should the church's attitude be towards those who are weak in faith? And in verse 1 of our text, Paul answers that question. He says, first, welcome them. That our attitude towards those who are weak in faith, who don't get it fully, who don't understand the fullness of the gospel, our attitude towards them should be to welcome them. It should be a spirit of hospitality towards them. We should receive them into the church. We shouldn't turn away from them. We shouldn't separate from them because of our differences. We should welcome them. And then Paul says, don't just welcome them so that you can argue with them. Just don't let them into your midst and welcome them just so that you can have the opportunity to quarrel with them over your differences, which is what a lot of people do. A lot of people in the church and in the world who pride themselves on accepting difference, accept it basically because they like to quarrel with it. They like to have people to put in their place. So when it comes to examples 
Paul gives us two examples of, of areas of difference. The first one in uh, verses 2 through 4 has to do with eating meat. And if you read this and are not a vegetarian and you started like crying a uh, cry of triumph in your mind, then uh, you need to be in conviction of, of your, your superiority and also need to understand the context here is a little different from the 21st century. The problem in the early church wasn't that some people were trying to live meat-free lives. It was that some people were so anxious about the source of the meat that was available to them in this pagan city that they were afraid to eat any of it for fear of tainting themselves. And so they restricted their diet so as not to unintentionally eat meat that was offered to idols. The context here suggests that Paul's speaking to that same controversy. He addresses elsewhere whether or not it's okay to eat meat that was offered to pagan idols. That's, that's one controversy. The second one has to do with observing days. Some people observe the day and some people don't. Now, here what he seems to be getting at has to do with uh, ritual observance of Old Testament feasts and festivals. That there were people within the church who despite Christ's fulfillment of the law, still believed that they had to fulfill those ritual obligations. So it's important to keep doing all of the the feasts and observing all of the festivals that were part of the Old Testament economy. And that's a situation that we still have today. There are still people within the church who, who feel more in touch with Christianity or with Christ if they introduce the flavor of some of these Old Testament observances into their faith. Now, Paul doesn't give us a lot of information about these conflicts. He doesn't get too deeply into the details, and that's good, because sometimes general principles can die the death of a thousand qualifications, and New Testament scholars are really good at this giving you so much of the original context that it starts to seem like nothing that's being said has any application outside of it. And that none of it speaks to our concerns. When you don't have that much information, though, the general principles are easier to derive. We don't know all the ins and outs of these controversies. We have to speculate. But as a result, the general teaching of Paul comes through to us clearly. Now, we know... A few things. There are a couple of things that, that we need to, to be really clear on. So both the strong and the weak have faith in Christ. We're not talking about differences uh, of like the core of the gospel. Like, these are all Christians. These are all believers. They are all in the pale of the church. The weakness consists in not grasping the full extent of the freedom that we have in Christ. That's the specific kind of weakness that's being talked about. And that weakness is not a denial of the faith. The fact that these people are weak in faith should not lead the strong to think, well, I don't, they're not even really Christians. I mean, are these people even believers? No. Paul is saying these are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it's possible these weaknesses could lead to larger error. And so you'll see when Paul talks about this question of weaker and stronger brothers in other epistles, he's harsher, he's sterner there than he is here. I think the reason for that is that here he understands that we're not talking about people who are attacking the gospel. We're talking about people who don't fully grasp it, who don't fully understand it, which, unless the Spirit illuminates you, that's a very understandable place to be. So 
the general principles that Paul gives us are these, mutual forbearance. He says in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We need to bear with one another. But the rationale that he gives isn't the one we usually give for this kind of, uh, let's say, tolerance. Like Paul's not saying you should bear with one another because those differences, they don't really matter. Don't sweat the small stuff. He's not saying you should bear with one another because it's all relative. And who can really know the depths of the gospel? No, not at all. And he's also not saying this, which is not a bad statement, is, is a gracious statement, but it's not quite what he's getting at here. He's not saying uh, in essentials unity, in non-essentials charity. But he's not dividing up the Christian faith and saying, well, here's the really important stuff to believe, and here's, you know, minor stuff, and it doesn't matter what you believe in that stuff. The differences do matter. The differences here are important, and you see in those other passages that these differences can lead to bad outcomes that would need to be rebuked. So the differences do matter. Paul's not saying get along with your fellow Christians as long as the things they disagree with you over are not a big deal. He's saying bear with one another, and the rationale has nothing to do with what the differences are and everything to do with who is the Lord of those people. The rationale is that God is the judge, not us. That God is the judge. And as he says, the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, Christ is working not only to justify, but also to sanctify. And where we see others who are weak in faith, we must defer to the master. If Christ is their master, if Christ is their Lord, if Christ is satisfied with them, who are we to find fault? That's the principle that he's articulating to defer the master and to respect the conscience of individuals. He says that we must be convinced in our own mind whatever we do. And this is interesting. He's saying this to those who are right and to those who are wrong. He's saying to those who are wrong on the issue that they should be convinced in their conscience and we should extend charity as they act on their conscience. Because it's not the, the action necessarily that, that has to be respected. It's the motive. It's the fact that it's done in faithfulness to the Lord. It's the fact that it's done as unto the Lord that he's protecting. Whatever is done to honor the Lord should be respected by us. Let God judge those actions, not us. And our purpose, he says, is life in Christ. We live in Christ. We die in Christ, and so do they. So that all that we do is directed towards Christ, and Christ is the master of all. In fact, he goes on to say this is the reason why Jesus lived and died and lived again. That the purpose for that work of Christ, and that resurrection, was to be Lord. And if he is Lord, then we are his people. We are subject to him. So Paul's conclusion is that it's pointless for the weak to judge the strong. And it's pointless for the strong to despise the weak because all will answer to God. Then he quotes some words there at the end. And, and as you're reading that, you're tempted to think that, that he's quoting himself. That he's quoting 
a, a passage that he himself wrote in Philippians 2, but that's not what's happening. He's quoting Isaiah 45, 23, which he is also paraphrasing in that famous passage in Philippians. And that passage about every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, that passage on the lordship of God, he's using here to remind us that he who is Lord is also judge. That the Lord of all is the judge of all, and we should trust the judge. Okay, so one question that comes up is this, what is weakness? We're talking about weaker brothers. What is weakness exactly? And also, why is it so easily mistaken for strength? Why do we so easily mistake weakness for strength? In the Westminster Confession in chapter 20, which is the chapter on Christian freedom, it opens with these words, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So God is the Lord of the conscience. No law or doctrine of man can command the conscience in matters of faith and worship in any way that's either one of two things, contrary to what Scripture teaches or beside it. In other words, we can't just make up extra rules. We can't just condemn stuff that God does not condemn in matters of faith or worship. Now, the weakness that Paul is pointing to here, when he talks about being weak in faith, and you ask yourself, what do these people have in common? What is it that these people are doing? What they're doing is they're investing really heavily in what we might call extra-biblical conviction like moral scruples. Like, the Bible doesn't condemn this, but I still think it's wrong, and I'm not going to do it. Something like that. So that we add to what the Bible has forbidden or permitted, but do it for moral reasons. Do it because we're trying to be good. The weak in faith feel strongly about these convictions. They're prone to judge those who don't share these convictions. They bind their consciences to these things. And they bind the consciences of others to what amount to doctrines of men, or in some cases, doctrines that God handed down, but only for a season. But it's easy to mistake that for strength. Because whenever you see people showing uh, personal discipline, moral character, making sacrifices, denying themselves things that that you might enjoy, that looks like strength. When you see someone who's living that kind of rigid life, it's possible to look at that and say, that must be holiness. That must be what holiness looks like. That person must be more mature in faith, must be more spiritual than me because they follow all these extra rules. And that would be right if it were possible to be more moral than Jesus. To add on to what Christ has done. But this is exactly the reason why Paul is really clear here when he associates strength and faith with freedom, with liberty. He's not ambiguous here. He's not splitting the difference. makes it very clear that the strong in faith have freedom in Christ. That this moral scruple, these qualms, these people who are still living fearfully, that is weakness in faith. 
And weakness isn't good. Weakness isn't to be aspired to. If it were, we'd be in danger of pursuing weak faith. And indeed, this is arguably exactly what we have done as a church. In Rome, when Paul is writing, it seems like that the strong in faith of the majority he's writing to, but there's a, a minority of those who are weak in faith that he's seeking to protect. I would argue that today that ratio is flipped. That it's much more likely to encounter people in churches who by Paul's definition are weak in faith. Most Christians who proclaim faith in Christ are weak in faith, but that weakness has been redefined as strength. The extra rules on the one hand, the extra rituals on the other, make an appearance of piety, and therefore we see them as strength because it involves like doing more for Jesus. And as a result, in our churches all too often, we see what you might think of as the, the tyranny of the weaker brother, where, where the freedom we have in Christ is something we don't talk about, something that you keep behind the curtain because there are just too many people likely to be offended by that. Well, this isn't the way Paul thinks it should be. Paul expects that the freedom we have in Christ is a freedom that should be lived, not lived to an extreme, but certainly embodied. But as he calls us to strength, there's something we have to remember, which is to be strong in faith, you have to trust in Christ's love for the weak. It's easy to talk about what's wrong with the church. It's easy to say, oh, look at all these examples of people who are weak in the faith question is how you respond to that realization, what you do with it. What most of us do with it is show contempt. If the majority of the church today is weak in faith, there is a minority by God's grace in the modern church that is strong in faith by Paul's standards, that understands the freedom that we have in Christ. The mainstream may celebrate weakness as strength, but these people see things clearly. The problem is, all too often, they're addicted to welcoming the weak in order to quarrel with them. In other words, the, the, the strong in faith have indulged in a contempt for the weak, a contempt for their brothers and sisters in the broader church. Yeah, we welcome them because we want to fight with them. We want to show them how weak they are and how strong we are. Quarrelsome. That's where strength becomes weakness. This tendency to quarrel is not a sign of being strong in faith. It's a sign of weakness. Because our our proneness to quarrel with one another, our proneness to argue with those who are weak in faith and show them how wrong they are, is actually taking into our own hands what Christ has reserved for himself. Now, in justification, we know this. But if we're talking about justification, I, I hope you, you could affirm the idea that, that Jesus plus nothing is the path to salvation. We would never add any rule-keeping, any ritual, anything to our justification. But all too often in sanctification, we suddenly act as if Jesus is powerless and that we've got to not only sanctify ourselves, but sanctify them too. But when we do that, we're not showing that we're strong in faith. 
we're showing that we're still weak in faith, just in a different area. Think about it this way, an analogy. If you were at a church with really strong leadership, there's a lot of stuff that wouldn't make you nervous. Right? You might see people saying things or doing things and, and think, I, that's not right. I don't think a Christian should be doing that. But because you knew there was strong leadership, it wouldn't worry you because you would be saying in your mind, you know what, they're not going to let it get out of hand. They're not going to let it go off the rails. They're going to nip it in the bud, so to speak. You'd have a confidence, in other words. Whereas if you were in a church with weak leadership and you saw that sort of thing going on, you might be prone to step in and do something. Otherwise, it might all go off the rails. Right? So that anxiety to, to do it, to, to quarrel, to, to fight the fight, oftentimes is an expression of, of weakness, the lack of confidence. But here's my question for you. Does the church of Jesus Christ lack strong leadership? Does Christ's church, do Christ's people lack guidance? I hope you know the answer to that is no. Because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The church of Jesus Christ has never lacked strong leadership. We have the strongest possible leader in Christ, but he has set an example of strength that looks nothing like strength looks to us, that we're constantly being challenged by. The church has strong leadership in Jesus Christ, and here Paul is telling us to trust in that strength. Don't quarrel. Don't make a big deal. Be forbearing with the differences of others because in that way you trust in Christ to sanctify. He's not saying to give up on the weak. He's not saying some people are just going to be weak and there's nothing you can do about it. He's saying the way that the weak become strong is through forbearance, not confrontation, not quarreling. The way that the weak become strong is when the strong receive them, welcome them, not to quarrel. I quoted uh, W.G.T. Shedd last week, and I'll quote him again now, describing uh, Paul's program for the church, like how the weak would mature. He says, The strong should not attempt to decide the points of difference between themselves and the weak by inviting the weak to discuss them with them, by waiving the matters in dispute and dwelling upon the cardinal truth of faith in Christ, they would in the end convert the weak brother into a strong one. That's not me saying that. So if you're tempted to think, well, Pastor Mark is just a weak 21st century so-called Presbyterian, but in the good old days, they would have had no truck with this stuff. That's, that's old school Presbyterianism saying, don't quarrel, receive them. And in that hospitality, the weak will be strengthened, which makes sense if you think about it. If you quarrel, you force those who are weak in faith to double down on their position out of pride to defend the areas where they are not yet right, not yet mature. And in being forced to defend that weakness, they have to to own it, and pride won't let them grow. But if you practice forbearance, you create a community where the weak can grow strong. And that's the kind of community that Christ has called us to be, a community where the weak can grow strong. That kind of community is always going to have a mixture, weak and strong within it. And that means it's always going to be a place where people are called to mutual forbearance. 
Lord willing, this church, Grace, will always be that kind of church, a church that loves without quarreling. Not because we think the differences don't matter and not because we just think some people will never be strong in faith. It's because we're trusting in Christ from beginning to end for our salvation and for yours. And mutual forbearance is one of the ways we show that trust. We love one another without quarreling. Now, if you've looked around this church and you said, wait a second, these people don't all share my convictions. These people aren't living the kind of life that that I'm trying to live. They must not be strong in faith like me. Then it is time to own up and repent and to realize that Paul is speaking to you here. Do not pass judgment on those who have liberty in Christ. But by the same token, if you've looked around and you've said to yourself, these people don't understand freedom the way that I do, and I'm tired of being surrounded by all these weaker brothers, having to worry about where other people are at and to bear with their shortcomings, then it is time for you to own up and repent as well. Do not despise the one who abstains. Christ has accepted him. Instead, let's keep looking to Christ for ourselves and for one another. Let's practice loving one another without quarreling. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.